50 years ago when manners still mattered a little bit, you had all these courses like for lower middle class people, we will teach you the manners of high society, and they always fail. You know why? Because they teach you the explicit rules. They don't teach you how to violate rules. When a certain social circle has certain rules, you are truly part on it if you learn the in-between rules of how to violate the explicit rules. Hi everyone, welcome back to Tourist Information. I know it's been a while, so I hope you're well. And we do have a fun guest for you this week. It is Slavaj Žižek, a Slovenian philosopher, cultural theorist, and public intellectual. He's the international director of the Birkbeck Institute for the Humanities at the University of London and a visiting professor at New York University. Um, The latter is where I encountered him. I, I reached out. And he was staying at a friend's place in Greenwich Village and agreed to have me ambush him. And I think we recorded about two and a half hours. I first encountered Zizek with the documentary by Sophie Fines, The Pervert's Guide to Cinema, which was followed up by The Pervert's Guide to Ideology. I adore both of these films. They delve into a lot of my favorite filmmakers from David Lynch to Alfred Hitchcock, Charlie Chaplin. They look at hugely successful films with major impact in in the cultural landscape of the United States and around the world, and he deconstructs them with Freudian psychology and Lacanian philosophy to incredible effect. Whether or not you agree with him, he is just such a charismatic speaker and and so compelling in his arguments that it's just so provocative where your mind goes trying to follow him or to debate him. Um, So yeah, I was doing a series for Amazon. They hired me to interview Mike Tyson and Errol Morris and then I pitched them Rosie Perez and they went for that and then they kind of dissolved. So the first episode we aired with Tourist Information was that interview for Amazon with Rosie Perez. And the next one that I was trying to follow up with was Zizek. So this is from, I think, 2015. But I thought I'd lost it. I I had the transcripts of the interview, but I couldn't find the recording and I stumbled onto it. And because he's so much fun, the so-called Elvis of cultural theory, uh, even though it's a little bit wacky, Uh, I thought you might have some fun with it. So, this week's guest, the inimitable Slavon Zizek, um, on Tourist Information. With with Cuba, um, what I found interesting about their suffering, like, is that they know where the bars are of their cage. You hear the metaphor again and again with Cubans that they're in prison. That it's just a, an island prison, mm. the, the water is a cancer, mm. and all of that. But because they know they're in prison, they're resigned to it. They don't have a choice about what job they can get. They have, they have PhD, higher PhD than anywhere else in the world, and they're stuck in a horrible job where they're overeducated. Mm. But here there's the burden of, I don't know where the bars are, but I know I'm in a cage. I know the forces that seem to dictate what I can do or not do. Um, are there, but I don't know where they are, and my parents have tried to give me more opportunity than they had, but I'm afraid I'll make the wrong decision. Yeah, although what uh, I see your reasoning here, and out of point, 
I, uh, I agree with it. That's why I think that, for example, what WikiLeaks and others are doing, I've written about it, is important. Because obviously, if you look at facts, somebody can, in a just way, can say, you worry about NSA here. Yeah. But just think about what, I don't know, in China or Putin in Russia is doing. The control is much stronger. But again, I would, I think, so I agree that one shouldn't focus too much just on United States. I'm the first to admit that the situation is much, much, much more oppressive in other countries. But as you said, and I think this is crucial, in those other countries, as you have put it, they know where the bar is. Like, if you try to convince an ordinary Chinese guy that he lives in freedom, no, he knows very well, although they are unspoken, but this invisible... Uh, uh, they are invisible in the sense that... Uh, this Now we touch theory. This I was always fascinated with. Prohibitions, which, in order to be effective, had themselves to remain unspoken. Huh. Everyone knows about them, but you are not allowed publicly to proclaim them. Right. For example, probably in Cuba, nobody, no functionary, it would be a wonderful, sublime moment, would say, like, imagine Raul Castro now giving a speech where he says, here, I promise you, you know where your bars are. You, you know, like, uh, everyone knows it, but you are not allowed to state it publicly. And this phenomenon always fascinated me how you have prohibitions, to put it in speculative terms, which are themselves prohibited. Huh. And I think we have a lot of this also in our Western democracies and so on and so on. Like to be cynical, you are giving, given a freedom of choice, but with these implicit provisos that you don't fully use it, you know. <laughs> and this is always what interested me, even at the most everyday level. For example, in, uh, I don't know how it is in this country, but in Europe, it's, let's say you are rich, I am poor. You invite me out for dinner. We all know absolutely that you will pay. Yeah. But we have also here this manner that when the bill arrives, we have to play for 10 seconds the game of, more. Well, let me pay, and then you insist, and then, you know, like, I'm, giving, I'm given a choice, but although it's clear, and it would be extremely impolite from you to tell me, okay, you want to pay, then pay it, you know. Right. Although you were officially... So what I'm thinking is that I even... Uh, uh, this is my highest association here that I mention usually. Imagine we are in Moscow, 36, 7, Stalin gives a speech. Then there is a debate. Yeah. One guy is crazy, he stands up and criticizes Stalin. Okay, next day the big question will be who saw him the last alive or whatever in Gulag. But let's say then that another guy stands up and says publicly to the first guy, you broke the rules, we don't criticize Comrade Stalin here. My point is the second one would disappear even faster. It was, of course, suicidal to criticize Stalin. Yes. But it was even more prohibited to announce this prohibition publicly, as oh. it were. This is, this is the central mystery, as it were, of ideology. This, you know, we have 
Okay, I put it in this way, and this fascinated me from my army experience. I did serve the Yugoslav army, the old man, but it's, I think, the same here. I spoke with some ex-soldiers and so on. When you have a certain community with, where relations, of course, are regulated by certain rules, explicit rules, yeah. you always have some higher level implicit rules which tell you how to relate to these explicit rules. Because often it's standard that something that is prohibited is just an empty prohibition. Effectively, between the lines, you are even solicited to violate those prohibitions. For example, I don't know how it is in Cuba, but according, maybe I was victim of a right-wing propaganda, but I know this from socialist countries where I lived. There were things like black market bribery and so on and so on. Uh, although you were doing the prohibited thing, but you were not only totally expected to do it, but you were considered an idiot. It may even lead to your exclusion if you did not do it. Or even some sexual prohibitions, like in traditional patriarchal society, father tells you don't mess around. Everyone knows between the lines the message should be a boy, pr prove yourself. Right. You know, this is the first paradox, where something is prohibited, but you are effectively expected or solicited to do it. And I wonder to what extent this wasn't the case, especially in that special period right. in Cuba, because I read some analysis, not even a right-wing one, mm -hmm. which claimed that if you, if all of a sudden the regime, which was officially fighting black market corruption and so on, if it were really succeed in crashing all this, it would have been probably a humanitarian catastrophe. Right. So many people depended their food on, so that is one thing. But an even more interesting phenomenon is the opposite thing, where you are given a freedom of choice on condition that you don't use it. You know, this is classic story, you probably don't know it, I use it in one of my early books. I had a friend of mine who went to Yugoslav army and he was a hero for me. Uh, it was like this, first you were two weeks, it was obligatory army service. He was for two weeks just there uh, doing elementary training, then the crucial sublime moment comes. All soldiers in those barracks are gathered together. You repeat the formula of, I swear, I'm ready to give my life for my country, blah, blah. And then you have to sign, it's a special occasion, in the book, your name. In this way, you are full soldier. Yeah. Okay. The friend of mine did something extraordinary. When he approached the officer with that big book to sign his name, he said, is it obligatory for me to sign my name in or not? Hmm. The officer answered him, of course it's not obligatory. It would have been meaningless. I mean, a, a promise or a plea to sacrifice your life. Yeah. If, you are, if it's obligatory, it has no meaning. Then my friend said, okay, fuck you, then I will not do it. And the, soldier, the officer told him, are you crazy? You will be arrested for this. <laughs> okay. Then they got into this weird debate, which ended up with my soldier, my friend, my friend soldier, yeah. getting, the officer was probably too stupid, so he fell into this trap. The 
my French soldier got from the officer, and I have a photocopy of it, I've seen it, uh, an official document which says something so that and that, I thereby order you to voluntarily, freely sign this oath. <laughs> and I don't think this is any communist totalitarianism. Every social link has this aspect of, you know, like, you are free to do it, but you have to do it freely. Right. And what fascinates me here is, maybe you've heard this old joke of me, of how even here is one of the tricks of our permissive societies. I always use this example, sorry if you know it. Imagine we are at Sunday afternoon, you are a small boy, and you have a traditional authoritarian father. The father tells you, we now have to visit your grandmother. I don't care how you feel, I know you prefer to stay at home playing, but... Your duty is to go. I don't care how you feel, just go there and behave properly. Mm. It's not a problem with this, I claim. You hate to do it, but you retain your inner freedom, you resist, you start to hate your father, all things go well. Mm. Now imagine a so-called postmodern permissive whatever father. I experienced this, I know it. He will do to you something much more tricky and more oppressive. He will tell you something like, it's your decision, do whatever you want. But I hope you know how much your grandmother loves you and expects you. You know what he is telling you? He's formally giving you the freedom of choice. But the message between the lines is a much tougher injunction. Basically, he orders you not only to do it, but to want to do it, to voluntarily do it, no? This is the great trick of permissivity, I claim. And you know which movie, this may surprise you, I've written about it briefly, I forgot where. There is a movie, I think I used it in my event book. It's a crazy movie, Project X, did you see it? Uh, on t I did see it, I did see it, yeah. uh, You know, about uh, young two, kids. two jerks, young kids, yeah. organized the mega orgy. <laughs> uh, I mean, and then, you know, they, they sent out just email invitation, thinking three, four people will come, 5,000 people come. Right. Okay, but do you remember the beginning and, and the end of the movie? Where at the beginning, parents go somewhere for a weekend short trip, and father tells the son, gives him precise orders, you know. Right. Not more than five people, don't touch the swimming pool, don't touch the car, stay only in the living room, blah, blah, blah. Okay, then after not only the house, but everything around it is in ruins, and father comes back Monday morning. It's a crucial line of a dialogue. He says to his son, okay, you did a horrible thing. I didn't expect it. You will have to work hard to repay it. But let me tell you something. You had the guts. I bowed to you. I didn't know that you would be able to do this. You know, it was this. And I think that most of the pleasures that we enjoy are like this, you know, the must. We live, as Jacques Lacan, my psychoanalyst, uh, put it, every master leaves you a small niche of where the master, the big other, doesn't look at you. There you can enjoy. Even You know where you even find this? In theology. It's crucial. I spoke with some specialists, my friends in Israel, for this. Uh, like, you know, one of the first commandments, I am the only God, don't celebrate other gods. Ah, ah, ah. Every specialist will tell you. It says something more. Don't celebrate other gods 
in front of me. Uh, you have to think like what you do there secretly, privately, it's your problem, right, right. just not in the public space which I dominate and so on. So that's almost the definition of pleasure, you know, that a good paternal authority pretends to be oppressive, but allows to you these small niches where you can secretly steal something, violate something, and so on and so on. And Can we pivot to, to your point yeah? of... Michael Jackson seems like an example of something like that. Yeah. And why I raise him is he is writing songs called Keep It in the Closet. He is holding children at events where he's an yeah. adult. Yeah. He cringes at the idea of kissing a woman or yeah. being related, yeah. even though ostensibly he's married to yeah. a few women. So it's totally obvious not only is he gay, yeah. but he's interested in male pedophile children. Gay. Yeah, he's a yeah. pedophile. And when I think about the lowest of the low in contemporary society, it's a pedophile. But I agree with you because from what I know about Michael Jackson, yeah. what fascinated me is that it's not even hidden implicit, like how uh, on the one hand he liked to present himself as this angelic feature, pure goodness, children. But if you look at his performances, you have all these and jumping. Sex, sex. Yeah, you have all the vulgar gestures there. <laughs> and this tension interests me. It's like in this yeah. culture, we have Britney Spears becomes a massive celebrity, largely on the strength of the narrative of saying, all I'm going to sing about is I want to get fucked. Yeah. But I'm a virgin. And I'm waiting until marriage. So you can feel okay. But she cheated. Or she, yeah, she was lying. She was lying. She was lying but, yeah. but the narrative You was, see, this is my naivety. I always like to what? ask the naive question. I, yeah? I, I, I'm not particularly... You know where I, I, I turned against her? Absolutely. Not only that, don't like her. You remember she was once caught into the debate, should we attack Iraq or not? And she made She's the famous gross. statement, I think we simply should trust our president. <laughs> Something like that, you know. I would pardon her her bad songs. <laughs> well, I'm just interested in, in yeah. this country. It's obsessed with teenage sex. Yeah. Old people are mutilating their faces to look like teenagers, yeah. to have the skin of teenagers. Yeah, yeah. And just by her saying, I'm a virgin, I'm waiting until marriage. So anything that you're projecting onto, or anything you're thinking mm. about what I'm saying, I'm singing a song that's made me famous at 14 saying, hit me baby one more time. Clearly, fuck me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm not singing that because I'm a virgin and I'm waiting until marriage and I have purely puritanical Christian yeah. values like you do, so I'm wholesome. That duality, like you're saying, is we yeah, pretend yeah, the one, yeah. but the, the realities, I'm looking at you, fuck me, fuck me. Now fuck me. You, you said something very important. That's maybe one of the fundamental premises of how actual ideologies function. When you talk about this puritanism and so on, yeah. it's not just what it explicitly says. It's also this obscene underground that you should bring in. This is absolute ideology. It's also this set of secret rituals or whatever. This is why, that's my example. You know all those, okay, manners doesn't, don't matter today, but 50 years ago when manners still mattered a little bit, you had all these courses like for lower middle class people, we will teach you the manners of high society right. and they always fail. You know why? Because they teach you the explicit rules. They don't teach you how to violate rules. When a certain social circle has certain rules, you are truly part on it if you learn the in-between 
rules of how to violate the explicit rules. Right. And this is so important, you know, we always have to bear in mind this, that the system we have is not just one big homogeneous system. It's, it always has, as you said, this inconsistency. And again, I claim this is even, even, okay, I read, was it Naomi Wolf? She said something intelligent, that if you take seriously these politically correct rules of, you know, uh, total respect for the other, no aggressive, intrusive moves, then there is only one form of sex which is totally politically correct. Huh. It's a pure contractual sex. We, even if it's like a kind of a formalized mutual prostitution, you know, we clarify, and you know that in some countries, they are considering it now. Huh. I love it. Uh, who told me this? Julian Assange. The guy, yeah. who is he showed me there is they already they didn't yet accept it as a law, but the idea is that the state will distribute a kind of a forum to fill it in. Let's say we flirt with each other, we want to go to bed, but we want to be sure that no one will break any rules because Sweden has this pretty crazy regulation that. Let's say I want to seduce a woman yeah. and she gives very positive signals that she would like to do it, but I know that she hates Catholics. So I lie to her that I'm a Protestant. Now comes the catch. Even if she drags me then to bed and we have sex of a lifetime, but if two, three weeks later she learns that I'm really a Catholic, that's the catch. My act retroactively becomes rape. Oh, yeah, they use this word. I am a rapist. So, to avoid this, I like this. You have a forum, like, we want to fuck. Okay, let's do it first. You have a forum where you fill it in. Name, family name, age, illness. This I find even reasonable. Fuck it, if someone had age. Religion, education. We both sign it, and then we are free to... The fuck. I find this a little bit crazy. My only addition was, why don't we even just that sign it? We fucked and don't even do it. You know? right, right. But uh, you see what I mean? That's my pessimism. In an actual seduction process, you have at some point, somebody has to make a move, openly declaring your intention, which is always a risky move. Yeah. You can always retroactively be proclaimed that you harassed the person if the answer is no. You know, it's very risky, but I think we have to, to accept this because, again, as Naomi Wolf demonstrated for me conclusively there, if you, if you want to do a totally politically correct, tolerant, non-harassing sex, it's a contract. It's a masochist contract. You, like... No, I'm not mentioning here another movie to be burned, Fifty Shades of Grey, right. no? I haven't seen it, but I, yeah. Don't. Okay, the girl is interesting. She's not beautiful, Dakota Johnson. She's not beautiful in the usual sense, but she's attractive. But the whole movie is simply so ridiculous. I mean, I mean, I have nothing against commercial movies. I love them. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you. Well, where I wanted to go, I wanted to ask you this. When I... I wrote an article once about Facebook, and I looked at the two things that Facebook should obviously have yeah. that it doesn't, that nobody really mm, talks mm. about. 
Mm. It's ha it has over a billion people now who have signed up. I don't do it, you know. So I it's not you. I see that they're... they're no, no, the, no. Ah! Wait a minute. Ah, yeah, you know this. It's very embarrassing. I don't know what to do. There are two, three sites, guys, who... But they're not you. Yeah, they are not me. You're not And it Twitter. brought me even some trouble because they advocated positions pretending to be me, which are definitely not mine. That's bad. So with, okay. so with Facebook, the two things that fascinate yeah. me about it. For example, I think that people are uncomfortable going to an explicit dating site. They want to go to a site ostensibly that's about socially connecting. Yeah, yeah. Which I don't think it's... I think it's yeah. all about fucking. Yeah. Because the two things that are left out are very instructive about the real agenda of it. Yeah. I am not able to see who is looking at my profile. Yeah. Why? So that I have license to stalk everybody, which is my agenda. Yeah, I yeah. can see all the girls, hmm. and they get to look at me. So the explicit real purpose is hidden. Yeah. The other that's interesting, all of the internet seems 99% to be negative. So net hostile, but every, every content that comes out, people shit on it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Facebook, you're prohibited to dislike anything. Really? I didn't know this. You're to there, there is a like button, yeah. which is their, their way of generating market you don't research. You do a dislike button. Zero dislike button, despite petitions signed by millions of people yeah, yeah. saying, I want to say that photo of your family, I dislike it. Yeah, yeah. I dislike your dog. I dislike your yeah, meaningless yeah, 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 meal yeah, yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. You're not allowed to be negative. So, but, yeah. so you have to be negative in a contrary way. I have to, as Zizek say, look where I've been published, look at my wife, yeah, look yeah, at yeah, the yeah, trip no, I yeah, took, yeah, yeah. and you feel like shit because yeah, yeah. you're not doing as well as me. But you know, but isn't it that the negative message, as you said, you just have to encode it. I will tell you a cultural difference which always fascinated me because I didn't want to, of course, but I even brought a lot of trouble to some of my friends because of this. When you write recommendation letters, here in America, at least I was told this is the general rule, you have to praise like crazy the guy. Yeah. If you don't praise him enough, it's already read that you are delivering a hidden message for him of that guy. Yeah. In Europe, it's the opposite. If you just praise the guy, it's considered you are ironic. Huh. The only way that you signal that you mean it really is to add some modest slight criticism. If you don't do it, you really hurt the guy. Interesting. So I was confused and I broke these rules in both directions, you know. <laughs> I wrote a letter with a slight criticism here for the United States and the guy started to shout at me crying on the phone, do you want to destroy me or whatever and vice versa, and so on, and so on. Uh, and uh, another thing where things get enigmatic with this, uh, maybe you read this, I've written about it, with this uh, permissiveness. With my friend, Mladen Dolar, I was three, four years ago at Harvard, and after our talk, some professor invited us, and some other professors, the key point is we didn't know each other. Sure. So the professor said at the beginning, let's first present, each of us to others, state please your name, where do you work, where you are employed, the field of your work, and your sexual orientation. Mm. And for us in Europe, this was considered extremely impolite. Yeah. Here in the States, you are much more severe yeah. concerning, uh, 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 how do you call it, uh, um, uh, showing your breasts, the woman, yeah. uh, topless. Yeah, you're not bathing. You're not Why in Europe it happened in all countries, communist, <laughs> capitalist, yeah. 
some 30 years ago, all of a sudden, you can do it. In some countries more, in some countries less. Yeah. But you are absolutely not looked upon as weird. In some beaches, not nudist beaches. Yeah, regular. You can yeah. do it. Yeah. And I remember a friend of mine from the United States visited us. We went to a Slovene beach. And all those naked breasts, I could see how he felt oppressed, all those breasts threatening. And this is an interesting aspect of the cultural difference. How it's not simply we Europeans are more or less oppressive, but how, how differently oppression is posited, no? For us, you can, you, you can be surrounded by naked breasts, no problem. But you don't ask about... What's your sexual orientation? Here, you can talk about this, but to be in the proximity of a naked body, this all also interests me how, I wrote about it, how all the status of religion in the United States, for example, in most of the hotels, here at least, Bibles. No, 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 oh, this, sure. this you find even in Europe, no, but uh, uh, when the hotel has more than 13, 14 floors, there is no 13th floor. You get 12, 14. My reaction is the New Americans pretend to believe in God. But God knows that, that, that 14 is really 13. Whom are you cheating, my God? You know, whom are you cheating? Right. You don't believe in God. You think you can cheat things like that, you know. So it's, these are very interesting. One shouldn't exaggerate the, the weight of this phenomena, but they are interesting signals in how beliefs function. What does it mean to believe in something? I always like to complicate things here, you know? There is a wonderful book by French anthropolo anthropologist, uh, historian Paul Vein, V-E-Y-N-E. Did ancient Greeks believe in their myths? And of course the answer is no. Like, of course, no Greek was so stupid to think that if you really climb the Mount of Olympus, you would meet Zeus there or whatever. So, in what sense did they believe? It's also wrong to read it as metaphorical belief. Uh, like, Zeus was for them just an embodiment of a high rationality or whatever. No, it was closer, that's his very elegant answer, to something that we call politeness or sincere life. Let's say we are not good friends. We meet on the street. And I see you, we are approaching. Even if I'm secretly saying to myself, couldn't I have uh, noticed you five seconds earlier and then take the other part? But when we meet, we shake hands and I will tell you something, I nice to see you, how are you? Now comes the mystery. We both know that I don't care how are you and I don't think it's nice to meet you, but nonetheless, we don't perceive this as a hypocritical lie. No. I nonetheless signal in this way, not what I really feel, but some fundamental benevolence, like, you know. Yeah, yeah. And the idea is that it's more in this way of a sincere lie. It's a question of politeness. So even concerning, for example, I spoke once in Israel with an uh, Israeli army specialist in psychological warfare studying uh, suicidal bombers. Yeah. And he gave me a, a very interesting answer to my question. Do they really believe? Like, do they really think I bomb myself, I go to heaven? 
He told me, from what he can judge, no, it's more than they have terrible doubts and they try to convince themselves by acting. Mm. You know, it's like, to I will overcome my doubt by proving that I they're doing it. Right. It's, it's, uh, so again, what, even, I don't know how it is here, but if I have some older relatives who are religious, and I always make this experiment in a polite way, but nonetheless, I ask them, if, if, why? These simple questions. Because there was a nice analysis in a Slovene journal, they asked people, are you Christian? Okay, 80% answered yes. Then they asked them just about a detail which is central part of Christian religion. Like, do you think that 2,000 years ago there was a guy walking around Palestine who was son of God? 20% believe it. Huh. It's incredible how, you know, it's uh, typical. My old friends, the usual answer they give me is, I don't know, maybe there is God, maybe not. But it's simply part of my cultural identity. It makes me feel nicer if, and so on, and so on. May, may I interrupt you? Just Please. To, just you to... definitely should all the time interrupt <laughs> so, me. Yeah. Well, it's something I wanted to ask you yeah. about. It's a dynamic that fascinates me. My mother was from Budapest, where she was born. Oh, really? She, yes. Uh, Hungarian gypsy. You know what I like? Gypsies? Yes. You know what I like about Hungarians? Isn't it that you do it the other way around? First family name. You don't say Imre right. Naj, but Naj Imre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other thing is that it's a historic, like all those names that we know mostly from history and horror movies, you can meet Attilas there and so on. It's most common. My brother's no. name is Attila. Yeah. Attila. Isn't this wonderful? <laughs> you know, but there is one country which is nicer. I was told that somewhere inside Paraguay, there is a city whose population is mixed, Catholic natives huh. and ex-Nazis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have their children playing with each other. One child's name is Jesus, the other child's name is Hitler, you know, and it's <laughs> wonderful, <laughs> Hitler playing with Jesus and so on. But sorry, what about Hungary? Yeah. Well, I just say, my mother was, was baptized. She abandoned religion. My, both of my brothers were baptized. I was not. We have different fathers. I also was not baptized. Okay. I'm one of the few, yeah. So when I looked at what religion was, my brothers went to church and, mm -hmm. and did the whole pageantry. It made no mm -hmm. sense to me. My father, mm -hmm. a complete atheist. Um, the closest I've been able to come to religion as a child mm -hmm. was American wrestling. Because wrestling? Wrestling. Like because what in the novels of John Irving, people wrestling? No, 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 no. Not like... Old Greek wrestling, yeah, American uh, professional wrestling. Are you mean this Hulk Hogan or Hulk Hogan? Exactly Hogan. Hogan. Yeah, yeah. So it's all fake. Yeah, it's fake. No, it's all fake. Do you know? I think it's total fake. No, or whatever. They or admit it. They admit yeah, it. Yeah. But when I was a child, they didn't admit it. It was ah. a, it was a big deal that, and this is the this is the correlation that I'm interested in your take on mm. the central deceit of professional wrestling seem to me to be the central deceit about organized religion is the most obvious thing about it is that deceit that it's fake that it's bullshit yeah but here i am uh, second sorry please but, finish but here. that being said pretending that hulk hogan was real and took out the mm. bad guys and stood for children mm. and could do mm. impossible things i felt as if i believed more that hulk hogan was real than christians i knew believed that jesus was real and it was a thrilling feeling. Thrilling feeling. 
to experience. It was like a drug for me to experience as a child. Yeah, but I totally agree with you here because I claim that this is even a general... The mystery is this one. How is this logic of what in psychoanalysis is called fetishist disavowal? Yeah. I know very well, but... You know very well that it's a fake, but nonetheless... And I think many of our beliefs function like this in the sense that the fact that you know that it's not true absolutely doesn't prevent you from acting or taking it as if it's true. And I even think that the, that quite, for example, maybe you heard this joke, I used it at some point, now I stopped, it was too much all the time, how my favorite example of this logic is Niels Bohr, you know, Copenhagen quantum. Yeah. Maybe you know the story, it's a wonderful one. I read it in a biography of him. He had a house in the countryside and once there, country house just to retreat. And a friend scientist visited him there and noticed above the entrance to the house a horseshoe, which is, I don't know if it is here in Europe, it's a superstitious item allegedly preventing evil spirits to enter. Here it's good luck. Yeah, good luck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so... The friend asked him, but look, this is superstition. Why do you have it here? Do you believe in this bullshit? Bullshit. Niels Bohr says, I'm not crazy, of course not. Then the friend says, but why do you have it then there? And Niels Bohr gives a perfect ironic answer. He says, I don't believe it, but I was told that it works even if you don't believe in it, you know? <laughs> perfect. And that's how we relate today. We don't believe in democracy that it's really, but we act as if, it somehow works, and so on, and so on. That's a very nice point that you made here. And it also, uh, uh, how would it, this is also the deepest lesson of Marxism at its best. It's not vulgar materialism, but authentic Marxism is deeply aware of the material force of illusions. You can think something is an illusion, but it can still work. Right. So uh, Even more so. Even more. Now you said something, that's crucial. And you know where I learned this? In my own youth, Yugoslav self-management. In the last two decades, it was a completely cynical system. Not even in the bad sense, it wasn't very oppressive. But the point is this one, it's a true tragic story. I had, when I was young, two friends who worked at the Central Committee. They lost their job. You know why? Because they were sincere believers in the system, in the official ideology. Yeah. And the apparatchiks perceived them as too dangerous. Right. So the point is that you see, here you have a belief system which, as you put it, works socially only on condition that you don't take it seriously. Right, right. So it's not only it doesn't matter if you take him seriously, you have to not take it seriously. Right. It's, it's, so you see, this is for me things that we have to be aware of when we talk about uh, uh, fundamentalism and so on. This is what impressed me so much. You know, those Charlie, Charlie Hebdo killings. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know that they almost, not quite, turned me religious. You know why? why? Was it reported here? I thought maybe God exists. Uh, you know, the greatest fake in the world. You remember world leaders holding hands on the top of a crowd, expressing solidarity? Yeah. You know that that was a total fake. You know in what sense? Uh, 
There are photos, you can find them on the web, the same scene, but shot from 50 yards back and up in the air. It was totally staged. It was just the leaders and three, four lines of people behind to give the impression, false illusory of a crowd, and then on a big empty square all surrounded by the police. It was totally staged. So you know what happened? When uh, Francois Hollande, the French president, visited uh, Charlie Hebdo and embraced in front of the house one surviving newspaper, a dove shitted on him. It's as if God, although I know in Europe at least this even brings luck. The idea is if a in dove Cuba, that's true also. Yeah, but the yeah. irony that I like is that as if God said enough of this tasteless fuck orgy, off. fuck off, let's give, you know. But what I wanted to say is that, yeah. you know, we were, I'm not saying it's the same. I Definitely not. I think that instead of just attacking Muslims as intolerant, Yes, we should. I have no sympathies for Muslims. Nonetheless, we should be aware that every civilization, society, has, as Lacan put it in French, uh, l'impossible à supporter, things that you simply are not able to tolerate. And we also have them. As some people said, okay, we mock at them when they protest about caricatures of Muhammad, but try to write an ironic piece on Holocaust. Right. I'm not for it. I'm just saying that we have to admit this well, openly. Errol Morris said uh, he's Jewish. Yeah. He made a documentary about uh, somebody who worked with electric chairs who was hired by white supremacists to go to Auschwitz to look for a chemical that had no ability to exist over the decades since the Holocaust yeah. happened. So it was a, a fait accompli that he would not find the chemical and they'd say, it's proof it never happened. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so Errol Morris said, "I'm I'm trying to make a film about the uh, about the Holocaust that won't be nominated for an Academy Award." Well, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you can't do uh, it. No, no, but I hate this. How this is why even the Roman Polanski film, uh, Pianist. Yes, yes. I hated it because it manipulates you. So, like whatever you say critically about that film, you will be You're immediately proclaimed. No, yeah. it's so. Again, I'm not saying. We should just allow everything, but we should be aware of this, that every culture, society has its, had its traumatic points, no? Uh, it's not, the problem is not simply our tolerance versus their intolerance. We have our points of intolerance and it's good that we have them. I still believe that one of the measures of civilization is a certain type of dogmaticism. Mm. What do I mean by this? I always take the example of rape. I wouldn't like to live in a society where all the time you have to argue against rape. I want to live in a society where it's automatically accepted that rape is unthinkable, should be prohibited. So if some man argues, you know, this bullshit like uh, women secretly wanted, that was right. not... That, you don't have to argue against him. The guy simply appears an idiot. Right. Well, one thing, I wanted to get a few points in to get your take on this. Yeah. Um, I'm a big fan of the, the art critic Robert Hughes, and he does a lot of what you do. Was he Time? In Time? No. Yeah, Time Magazine, that's right. Is he so still there? He, he just there? died. He just that's died. what I mean. I also admired him. Yes. He was one of the assets of Time, my God. He was, yes. So, so what I would like to get your take on, I, I also... 
when I write about Cuba, I've written about these boxers who've turned down millions of dollars to come over. So it's a bit of sports, but I try to assess the cultural values mm -hmm. and blah, blah, blah. But wouldn't the proper patriotic thing, this, I know this, some of these cases, yes. always, why not, and probably even the regime would be glad, why not say, okay, I go to the United States, I give half the money Same to the regime. Because they, I interviewed there Muhammad Ali. Uh, he was the same age, and he was offered $5 million to come over in 1972. A lot of money in those Where days. Who? To come to the United States to fight Muhammad Ali. Ah. And he was a young man. He was 25. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he said, what is a million dollars for the love of 8 million Cubans? Fuck you. So I interviewed him toward the end of his life. And what I discovered, and you'll enjoy this, I think, mm. is he agreed, for, he agreed to have me visit his home. And America said, you turned down $5 million? Mm. You're living on $10 mm. a month? Kind of thing. He lived in a nice neighborhood that Fidel Castro gave him. He's good friends with Fidel Castro, mm -hmm. but his car didn't work. He had no gasoline for his car. He couldn't fix a tire that had mm -hmm. gone flat. So he said, I will only allow you to interview me to tell you about all the money I turned down if you pay me $100, which I'm not going to give to the government. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I agreed. But while he was saying, he didn't know I spoke Spanish, he was saying this to the translator, how much can we get from this guy to talk? Because I'm not going to talk unless I get enough yeah, money yeah, to yeah, do yeah. it. So I filmed that, which everybody knew that that was true, and everybody knew he was an alcoholic. He was also drinking yeah, with yeah, me yeah, the whole yeah. time. But they'd never seen it. They'd never seen it visible in that culture. So what I was fascinated by was, not only does he have to turn down $5 million mm. for the regime, mm. But he also has to pretend that now, 40 years later, at the end of his life, there was no consequence to turning down that money. He has to say, money was nothing to me. He's not allowed to say it was fucking hard to turn down $5 million, $10 million, and live in Miami, and live it up. Uh, but nonetheless, I would like to know, like, how did he take that decision? Sincerely, was there some pressure, or how, years ago, to turn down? He said... He said, there are decisions in your heart and your soul that you can never afford to violate. That, that this was something that when I look at the benefit of what the revolution offered my people on balance, I feel we're much better off and I'm loyal to that. So I and you felt he was sincere in a way. I felt he was sincere that he looked at the literacy rate, he looked at black people in particular, who were there's basically apartheid in Cuba, pre-Fidel Castro. Castro was very successful with blacks being promoted. I heard from leftists, leftists, I, isn't it that nonetheless, hey, if you look at top nomenclatura, pure Spanish. Mm -hmm. Still a lot of racism in Cuba, I'm not saying yeah. it was abolished. But no, I'm not talking about everyday yeah. racism, yeah. Yeah. I'm talking about, look at the images of their Politburo Central Committee, whatever. Yeah, they're mainly white. Second thing, and I wonder if this is true, it would be wonderful to test it. I read somewhere, again, a leftist critique of a disappointed leftist, not a right-winger, that, you know, in the summer of 58, that famous uh, uh, Santa Cruz, or no, what is it? Sierra Maestra, yeah. No, 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 in the center. Okay, okay, yeah. Santa Cruz, a big battle. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, Santa Clara. Santa Clara, yes, sorry, yes, Santa Clara. Yeah. Now... Castro had half the island. Yes. And it was crucial for him to get the support of these educated middle classes. And 
At the same time, you know that Batista was a mestizo half. Yeah. So the idea is that this is a very low moment. He wasn't the, allowed in country clubs because he was too he yeah, was too dark. The, the gentle message to those educated was, listen, if you support us, it will be we pure Spanish who will rule, fuck off the, the, the mestizo, the half black guy. Yeah, he came, his father was very wealthy. Of whom? Fidel Castro. But let me ask you this. I was, with the athletes, I, I'm, I, I really enjoy painting. I really enjoy Van Gogh. I also, but I'm too stupid to paint. I'm more musical. I, I can't make my paint either, but I, I love yeah, yeah, thinking yeah, about yeah, painters yeah. and yeah, reading yeah. about their biographies. So, when I work backwards from culturally, Van Gogh is the most famous artist in the world. Couldn't sell a painting. But he produced a painting every day for 10 years and worked yeah, like yeah, a Dutch yeah, yeah, laborer yeah, yeah, yeah. and blah, blah, blah. Um, when I go to the Metropolitan Museum, that's where all the people clamor to, is to Van Gogh. He has this magical kind of... Mm -hmm. Why? Because he was producing some of the most valuable works of human endeavor and he couldn't sell them. But he was trying to. I know, I know. With Cuban athletes, they work with a boxing canvas and are producing talent that's worth tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, and they say, fuck you to the money. Isn't that a more interesting narrative than somebody trying to sell something and failing, than somebody rejecting it? But America doesn't give a shit about the Cuban but, athletes. But, uh, yeah, you mean the athletes now. Yeah, the yeah, athletes. Yeah, yeah. So what I wonder is, why is Van Gogh's narrative so compelling and magical, and it seems to validate that we all have something that's a treasure to be discovered. This is a wonderful detail, but does it still go on? What I fear is that now if the regime will really, even if formally communists remain in power in Cuba, but if it will open itself up, then all those guys would in some way appear as idiots, you know. Could be. That will be very sad, that's what I'm trying well, to say. Well, let's go back to Robert Hughes for a second. Yeah. One of the points he makes about the art world is that in the last 50 years, the most culturally significant thing it's offered is the art market. Yeah. There's no painting or sculpture that in any way is as resonant as the market itself. Yeah. So what he argues is he's part of the last generation. I mean, you're the same age as my father. So yeah. you, you're both, all of you are part of the same generation that is the last generation to walk into a museum where a child will look at a painting and not ask, how much was that? Yes. Whereas for all history of art, you yeah. would never, the first thing isn't how much is that? You think, what's its value? So how do you feel with capitalism and the American dream that everything has the price tag associated with it, and yet that value that seemed to be part of the, the desire that we had for things, seems to, it, everything seems cheaper now. Cheapened. True, and you know where things become really humiliating. I am not anti-Islamic in any way, but it's so sad, you know, these very rich still, they have some trouble, Arab Emirates, Dubai, yeah, Abu yeah, Dhabi. Yeah. You know, they are now building replicas. There will be a new Louvre there. I, and so on. Hughes talked about it as well. Yeah, yeah and it's in a way, it's, in a way, it's horrible. On a no? golf course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, on the. Uh, uh, I know this. Uh, on the other hand, uh, and I'm here pretty conservative. Conservative in the sense that I think we need cannot, canons, we need masterpieces. I don't believe in this bullshit, you know, masterpiece, the notion of canon is a tool of Western imperialism or whatever, yeah. simply as simple as that. But uh, 
I think the okay, all I can tell you is this. Here, what enters for me is this wonderful notion elaborated by an Austrian philosopher, my friend Robert Faller, of interpassivity. How? Right. It's not just that the others do things for us. We can delegate onto others even our passive experiences. And what yeah. worries me, at least in the half-educated middle classes, is that, but even with ordinary people, and this would be part of what you were describing, when you go to a gallery, you, you just are looking for famous paintings, and then you are just satisfied that you saw something, you know the value, you read about it. It's not for a moment do you really passively open up yourself to it. There's no experience. There is no experience, yes. So that's my point now. For example, how do you do if you want to understand really a picture? You read some interpretations, you go to a gallery, and you just check it up. Oh my God, it's really as it says in the book, and so on and so on. Even Adorno, Frankfurt School, already wrote wonderfully about this, that it's not just we are not active enough today. And now I come back to my point, which brings us back to what we were already talking about. It's not only at the level of enjoying art, but even, for example, at the level of believing. I think many of our beliefs, and that would explain what you mentioned, are interpassive in the sense of we don't believe, we just believe that some people believe, you know, like, for example, for example, uh, Santa Claus and so on. Of course, no one believes in it, you, if you're a parent, but you say, but I pretend to believe for my kids so that they will not be disappointed. Okay, it's clear what happens when you ask the kids about it, no? Of course, I don't believe, but I pretend it not to hurt my parents and so that I get the present and so on. This is what always fascinates me, beliefs in which no one believes, really, but they function as a social link, you do, know. Do you see democracy that way with this country? Like, nobody votes. Less than 50% of the population. Like, in Cuba, you have no choice but to vote. There's only one people mm. to go for. But here, you really don't have any... Op Most people are so disenchanted with the system, they say, fuck it, I don't want to participate. But we pretend like a democracy and the values yeah, of democracy yeah, are Yeah, exactly. But this is for me part of, a, I've written about it, of a larger problem which makes me very pessimist today. Yes. It is that I think that, okay, I don't have any illusion that at some point there was a real intense democracy, but at least it mattered. Don't you think that now, I always repeat this point, if you ask an average citizen, not only on the States, in Europe also, are you free? Most people would have answered yes, but if you ask them then this Leninist question, freedom, for whom to do what? They would probably list something like small freedoms of choice. I'm free because I can fuck whomever I want, I can eat, I can travel wherever I want, I can say whatever I want, I can pick up a job that I want, of course, if you get it, but that's another story. But this personal freedom, now they are very important things, I think. I don't underestimate them. But for me, nonetheless, democracy is not this. You can have all this freedoms also in a relatively authoritarian system. Yes. Democracy is not just about freedoms of choice, but about what choices do you have to choose from? Like, what if people collectively want to change the very general frame of what choices do you have? 
And there we are, I think, more and more, things are more and more impenetrable. That's why I wrote a comment, you know, those secret agreements they are preparing now, TISA and so on, trade agreements. It's horrible. These are mega important agreements. They will fix for decades to come the basic coordinates of our financial, economic lives, even of flow of information, and we were simply not informed. So this is what worries me, that even if formally we will still keep our democracies, isn't it we are slowly approaching to a state of things where we will have all our personal freedoms, but beyond that, the social process will become totally impenetrable. Things are decided. If you raise too many questions, they tell you experts decided or whatever. I really think that it's less and less even imaginable to have people collectively organizing themselves. And another thing here, which always makes me sad, how, and that's the beauty of ruling ideology, how they sell you new forms of unfreedom as more freedom. I always give this simple example. More and more in Europe also, at least for educated middle classes, you get, how do you call this, precarious work, not for... Okay, okay, it's a nightmare. You, you, you are alone, you don't get automatically health insurance, retirement, you don't get holiday, blah, blah. Yeah. But they sell you all this as, uh, uh, isn't it wonderful? You can decide yourself freely, are you insured or not? You can take holiday or not, it's up to you, you uh, blah, blah, blah. You know, like, in reality, it's much more anxiety, horror, but all this is presented to you as more freedoms. And that's for me, now we come back to your initial statement, do you see the bars or not? That's the problem for me. I don't underestimate, I'm not the traditional Marxist who says our freedoms are just formal freedoms, so let's do away with them. Yeah. No, it's good. It's good because, you know, even if you just falsely feel that you are free, there is a chance then that you will start to act upon it in the sense of, my God, fuck it. I'm supposed to be free. But is this freedom? You know, it's as the story of human rights. Right. On May the 2nd, I'm going to a boxing match that is looking to create half a billion dollars worth of wealth between two people who are is fighting. Is still going on? I thought this it, time it's is over. It's, it's going to happen May 2nd. So what I want to ask you about, you raised the, the Greek mythology and worshipping mm -hmm. the myth and, or, mm -hmm. or what it meant. Um, I'm interested in a society that's crumbling like Rome. You have to distract the masses mm -hmm. as it's mm -hmm. on fire with... Gladiators, mm. and it seems like it's a similar function with with boxing. Um, these two people mutilate each other, both darker skin, yeah, with predominantly yeah, yeah. the yeah, one percent. Yeah. They are now selling seats to watch this for a hundred thousand dollars each. Even one seat, oh one 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 seat, hundred thousand yeah, dollars. So, what I'm curious about is. If it's going to be seventy million dollars just to sit in that room to watch these two people beat the shit mm. out of each other. Um, and nobody else can afford, they're not even bothering to sell it to the public. Mm. What does it say, like, income inequality right now in the United States is about the same as it was during the French Revolution. But it, I don't feel the threat that everybody's going to rise up, yeah, even yeah. though it's getting worse yeah, and yeah, worse yeah, and yeah, worse. Yeah, yeah. So how do you see that unfolding in this country? 
Like, I don't think you are so special. I think that in the long term, Europe is in an even deeper crisis, the way it's uh, opening itself to this new right wing. I think something deeply catastrophic is happening in Europe now where, I, okay, you have Syriza, Podemos, all that, but in yeah. many countries, any form of left serious left political force is disappearing. It's more and more you have a central liberal capitalist party yeah. and then anti-immigrant and so on. It's even worse. But what you are asking me here, I would say that all this is a phenomenon that I call the, you know, the disappearance of public space. What do I mean by this? On the one hand, we do have People usually say the opposite, privacy is disappearing, NSA, we are all the time under control. No, I think public space is disappearing. Mm. Everything becomes part of your personal, like uh, Facebook that you mentioned before, even uh, digital sex. This is something very strange. You may post your photos there, you are of sex, you are viewed by millions even, but still in a sense you are alone. It's not public. Mm. Facebook, it's not true public. And this is what, uh, this, and this, this is why I also think, I will develop this maybe in my next book, why we have so much religious politics, like Christian fundamentalists, yeah. Islamists. It's not only that they are politicized religion. They are simply an ersatz politics, politics in the sense of debate, public of issues, is more and more disappearing. Yeah. And it's only in that way that that politics survives. Huh. So I, I'm pretty much a pessimist here, if you ask me. And I'm not the old-fashioned Marxist who I don't see... Okay, miracles happened, you know, who have thought of, of Syriza or of other rebellions. But I don't think any deeper necessity which will open up... Uh, a perspective of some new emancipatory order. Maybe we are in deep shit. Maybe Hollywood is right. When people tell me you are a crazy leftist, nothing will happen. Uh, where do you see all this? I tell them, Hollywood knows it. Look at these new blockbuster movies. Half of them are a near future, new, extremely class divided, like Hunger Games, Elysium, and so on. Yeah. Even Hollywood sees this in the air that we are approaching a new, not even class division, stronger apartheid society, to call yeah. it by name. And so or obliteration. America yeah. blows itself up and we yeah. jerk off yeah. to it. Yeah, yeah. And then when 9-11 happens, we say, we never, we never, it was unimaginable that it happened. What do you mean it's unimaginable? All, every movie is that. Yeah, yeah. Every fucking yeah. movie is yeah. Godzilla attack or King Kong. But it's very interesting, you know, how... Oh, I like Kong, uh, uh, King Kong, you know why? <laughs> Do you know that this is Soviet influence on the United States? Huh. The uh, producers of uh, King Kong, the first movie, visited in the late 20s Soviet Union and met some of those formalist constructivist architects and they showed them that famous project of... This is historical fact. Yeah. Of Palace of Soviets, a skyscraper with gigantic Lenin on the top. And one of them said, oh my God, replace Lenin with ape and we have the iconic <laughs> image for our movies. <laughs> Empirically Soviet oh, influenced that one. That's wonderful. One, one of the things you said that I found so yeah. wonderful, mm -hmm. and I'm a, I, I didn't have a chance to say it, I'm a huge fan of your work. But when you said that Fidel Castro's one of his favorite movies was Jaws, yeah. because capitalism will get even the 
people on the fucking beach just you know, yeah yeah like yeah that. yeah like no but what i like did you read in my for this i i i i wonder how if they already they noticed it you know my nastiest joke with fidel castro Please. is in the beginning of my i think it was welcome to the desert of the real yeah. when I, i it impressed me how i got in conversation when i was there totally unofficially with some cuban And what impressed me is how almost with a certain pride they showed me the, the dilapidating buildings, the poverty, as if you see everything is falling apart but we didn't betray our principles, no? And then I couldn't resist this to say that this way to sell this loss which functions as a positive asset, like you see, houses falling apart. It's the proof of our authenticity. Yes, yes. This is what in psychoanalysis we call the logic of castration. Oh. So no wonder the leader is called Fidel Castro, fidelity to castration. <laughs> I wonder how they took that, you know. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers are George Alarcon Swaby and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Please subscribe or rate the podcast. It helps us to keep bringing them out. Thanks again for listening.